Hi, my name is Tegan. I'm a fourth year PhD student in the Department of Sociology at the University of Maryland. Hi, I'm Mary Catherine, and I am a second year MA student in the Department of Classics, also here at the University of Maryland. And I'm Charlie. I'm a first year MA in the English Department at the University of Maryland. And we're here to talk to you all about some essays we read by Renee Menil. Um, and I think we can get started with a topic we spend a lot of time in class on that we kind of want to open up a little further. Um, Tegan's going to introduce it to us and um, maybe bring in um, a point they made earlier um, and bring it towards today. But we want to talk about heteronomy and um, uh, what it means to reproduce um, heteronomic art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I would definitely say the concepts of like homonomic and heteronomic um in the context of the essays, it was homonomic and heteronomic poetry, but really just those like broader concepts, um, the idea of imitation and opposition. Um, those have just been what I've been sitting with the most since our class discussion and since I read these essays. And I feel like it made a lot of sense to me. If I think too much about it, it, it stops making sense to me. But I feel like I was able to kind of make sense of those concepts by situating them in um, kind of our current political context, Um, especially when I was reading the essay on exoticism by Menil. um, I think that the idea of there being, um, when you live under colonialism, um, there can be individuals who essentially imitate Um, either the stereotypes or expectations of colonialism or there are individuals that will oppose those. Um, And so the former is um, falls under homonomic and the latter falls under heteronomic. And I feel like I was able to make sense of those concepts by thinking about a lot of arguments I've seen related to um, Black Americans in the United States and the stereotypes that um, are, you know, placed against Black Americans and then the ways that um, Black communities resist those stereotypes, but in a way that might reaffirm the broader systems that were implementing those stereotypes in the first place. I kind of saw, in a way, I saw a homonomic response as being almost just not embracing, but um, maybe unintentionally or unconsciously, like embracing those like stereotypes, whether you have internalized it or you um, use it against other um, Black people, um, but just kind of like taking or accepting the way that colonialism has framed race. Um and people of like specific races. And then I saw heteronomic as looking at those stereotypes and saying, we are not those stereotypes, but then relying on, still relying on whiteness essentially to kind of prove your own value. So I think about how like this was big during like Black Lives Matter when I would see this poster 
Um, I remember seeing this sign that was like, I have a PhD, would you still shoot me? Which was um, being held by a black man. And the idea was that he was like directing this sign towards a cop. But I saw a response that was like, why does having a PhD make your life more valuable? Like, and I saw this response of like, thug lives matter too. And so there's this stereotype that um, of like, that black people are thugs. And then I feel like to perpetuate that stereotype would be homonomic. But to say black people are not thugs because they can earn PhDs, they can become doctors, they can produce, they can effectively produce. Black people are not lazy, they are producers in our capitalist society. That strikes me as heteronomic to reject the stereotypes, but to still embrace the systems and what the systems deem valuable, uh, the systems of whiteness and colonialism and things like that. And refusal is would be something outside of that to reject um, the rat race, as Suzanne Césaire had put it in one of her essays, to just be completely outside of it, to not think that your value is tied to what um, white capitalism um has decided is valuable and is how you prove your worth um i've thought of another mm -hmm. example that kind of reminds me like in the same kind of vein if i can mm -hmm. um so like in between the world and me ta-nehisi coates like writes about having this reaction to this pretty famous saul bellows um quote that's like who is the tolstoy of the zulus and it's, you know, meant in a derogatory mm -hmm. sense, you know, kind of effectively asking or effectively stating that, oh, the Zulus don't have, um, you know, a person who would be capable of, you know, the things that Tolstoy was capable of, you know, was mm -hmm. his intention. And, um, like, Coates writes about having this reaction where he's like, I'm going to find the, like, quote unquote, Tolstoy of the Zulus and, like, goes on this whole, like, mm -hmm. dive to kind of prove this wrong and find this person and he like eventually thinks he's found this exemplar Zulu that you know could be the Tolstoy of the Zulus and then he realizes you know there's this like response to Saul Bellows by I think it's Ralph Wiley mm -hmm. who says Tolstoy is the Tolstoy mm -hmm. of the Zulus and you know and Coates writes about that and then kind of embracing that and just being like yeah like just trying to defy this idea by still using the same framework is ultimately just not liberating. And anyway, just when you were talking, I just just really struck me as kind of a similar um, similar thing. Yeah. Yeah, and that connects well to kind of how we're how we're noticing the surrealists like use other knowledge systems and other like artistic traditions to build like the art that they aspire to create it doesn't abandon like all form mm -hmm. or like they 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 write in a poetic form they write essays like these mm -hmm. are all like theoretically european buckets that they fill with their own content mm -hmm. um and like it's 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 not a total rejection of all these things and it's about um yeah i feel like the surrealists 
and Manil in particular would really agree that Tolstoy is belongs to mm-hmm. um, exactly this entire poetic tradition exactly um, and whatever the Tolstoy of the Caribbean, whoever that is, if it was you know Wilson Harris or somebody or V.S. Naipaul or someone we might end up reading, that's like that may well have already been the case, and so it's like what processes of like building what they saw as like an original culture out like out of the nothingness that colonialism like uh like the ground that it cleared essentially like what has that what has that created and and how do we like create space for it to thrive mm-hmm. you know that was sort of their question um i guess i'll continue because i wanted to bring this up around yeah. form specifically like the novel like um like something that Minil wrote in it's on page one ten of the shadow, so I don't know what essay that's in. Um looks like Birth of Our Art. But he writes that um about like the abstract phase, like the heteronomic phase, um no, sorry, the homonomic phase mm-hmm. that he observes um Caribbean poetry to be in or Martinican poetry to be in, where it's like imitating mm-hmm. um like European forms in like an aspirational way, but it's not thinking, it's not expressing anything legitimate. Um, But he says that it's part of a phase of evolution. So none of these, none of these phases of an evolution is wasted. They're like the poets who are playing around now. He says like their scholastic exercises in prosody prepare the way for a more flexible language for future poets. Um, And the docility of the language will allow the immediate integration of a genuine content into this prepared form. So he sees it as like an evolutionary process where you're not you're not spontaneously generating new forms. Mm-hmm. You're like mm-hmm. moving stepwise from like you're 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 loosening the language, you're breaking some rules without challenging others, but you're allowing another generation to to create further original art that expresses your society more authentically. Yeah, I I think that really also just speaks to the overall dynamism, which we use a third last week when we were talking about Suzanne Cesare too, but it's applicable here too. Like his overall dynamism, just in his whole worldview of the body, but also the mind, um, which is just a point I wanted to make. So thank you, Charlie. But I think this also maybe is like relevant for this point. Tegan was thinking about. About was it disidentification? Yes, but yes. Just thinking about this, like, um, like interaction with European forms. Um, you know, is it imitation? Is it not imitation? Is it refusal? Like, which is which? When is it good? When is it? Bad? You know, just this whole kind of like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, pot of spaghetti. We're looking, <laughs> trying to untangle. I guess. Yeah. But anyway, also. Tegan had an interesting point, so I'll stop talking now. No, no, yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. I, um, yeah, I think that um, this is really important to get into. Um, Our conversation in class yesterday um, reminded me of a concept that I learned about in another theory course, um, which is disidentification. Um, It's a concept by Jose Munoz, who's a theorist in queer of color critique. And it's essentially the idea of um, kind of taking 
theory that exists in a colonized colonized world and maybe even theory that came from essentially the side of the colonizers, but still seeing the value in it and kind of taking certain con- certain concepts or it doesn't even just have to be theory. It can go outside of that to even just like popular culture, but um, essentially the idea of taking and making it your own. Um, I think of Black Marxism as an example of that or a lot of um, like Black critical tradition um, where it's where theorists, Black theorists have recognized the lack of racial analysis in um, Marx's theoretical work, um, but still see the value in it for an anti-capitalist and even anti-colonial stance. And so they are able to take it, expand on it, make it their own. Um, and I I feel like that is really important because um, something else that kind of came up in class yesterday um, was that when we were talking about how um, you know, Rene Menil writes about refusal. Um, someone like pointed out, um, it might have even been uh Professor Davinsky that like, well, he's writing in French, which is like the mm-hmm. colonizer language. And I understand why that was brought up, but I feel like if you were to take that point and run with it, it almost feels like an unfair gotcha to be like, oh, well, everything you said is invalid because it was the colonizer's language, the end. Um and I guess I just wonder, I feel like for Menil specifically, who's interested in, um, as we've talked about, creating like a Caribbean identity, not just a Black or African identity in the Caribbean, what is Caribbeanness without French? Which isn't to say that, like, that they rely on French or that the or that French people or anything like gave them this, but just in establishing Caribbean identity, it does include the colonial history. It does include all of these French speakers. And so if you have to reject the French, then would that not just be a return to trying to be African? Right. Right. Like if the dissatisfaction mm-hmm. with like colonial culture mm-hmm is that it's like something that's been received. Mm -hmm. But then if you like reject all of what you've been received, you have like even more like nothing Mm -hmm. than you started with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, and if it's all, if it's the language you were born speaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, something that's been really sticking with me from the first week when we talked about M.A. Césaire and I just haven't been able to stop thinking about it. And I thought about it again when you were making this point, Tegan, is M.A. Césaire makes this distinction in Culture and Civilization, one of his essays, that, um, like, there's a big difference between, well, there's, there's borrow, like, well, he, he, he talks about it as borrowing. I think he uses the word appropriation, too, but he talks about borrowing from other cultures, but that the distinction, the important distinction isn't really what belongs to one culture and what belongs to, like, another culture. Because that's really kind of a false distinction. Like, I don't think he says that, but I think that's kind of... I I think you can take that point from what he says. But the the important distinction is, one, when borrowing is an act of submission and when it's an action, you know, when it's a willful, like, intentional 
liberating action just because it's an action. And then when it's like a forced, you know, unchosen submission and just the the difference that those, um, mm-hmm. I don't know, those two things can make. So I just, I think that's relevant with the whole writing in French thing because, you know, and especially just the, the fluidity of this whole topic in general that we kind of talked about this yesterday in class. Like, Manil himself is like, well, what at one time might seem like refusal, you realize later is just, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, heteronomic. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. You know, heteronomic art or just, you know, still adopting kind of this colonized uh, outlook. And so it's like, even if it's hard for an individual to parse out, like, which one of those it is at a given time, I think that this piece of it feeling authentic to whoever is doing it is very relevant and important and kind of taken to are you're just saying like well like what is caribbeanness like i don't know i mean i'm positing this question like maybe like the important thing in that question is not like oh objectively if we like look at everything like what's like quote unquote authentic but like i don't know i guess you know what caribbeans deem or feel is authentic i guess that's what authentic you know i just think that agency is really important <laughs> Well, which is why, personally, I'm excited to read, like, some of the novels that and poetry that mm-hmm. this, like, critical tradition produced. Because from what I understand is, like, a lot of these thinkers, I mean, Césaire being an obvious example with the, the epic poem. But, like, a lot, of, a lot of people were like, well, I'm going to actually, like, show, I'm going to, like, create this, I'm going to do a new thing with French. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think it was interesting to li- to hear um, Fatima talk a couple weeks ago about how Suzanne, like Suzanne's distinct style in French. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that is like a way of threading that mm-hmm. needle because mm-hmm. she's not saying, it's not a simple, like, um, I think it like, we're not, we're not saying that the idea of homonomic like identification doesn't exist like it mm-hmm. totally does right um like suzanne can't just say but like i speak perfect french of the french salons and like that's me speaking you know that's a, that i think we agree that's like with Manil, like that's a problem but it doesn't mean that like french is like totally unapproved like it can right. be bent and made anew. And, it, and that's like what's so exciting about art. Yeah, it's like earlier you used the word vessel, I think, which was kind of to your point. Like, yeah, it's just this, um, it gets infused with like the human experience. It's, you know, it doesn't ha- always have to be the other way around. Agreed. Yeah. I think that there was something that Fatima also said yesterday. Love to have you in class, clearly. <laughs> Shout out. <laughs> um, <laughs> about um hopefully i'm not like horribly misquoting um but i believe they said that uh like caribbean writers like excel at like breaking french and i feel like when they said that that was what really stood out to me it was like oh that's that's disidentification at least that's how i've interpreted it Mm -hmm. um interpreted the concept of disidentification and i think that would be an excellent example of that of taking the french language that has essentially been forced upon you, but just kind of acknowledging the irrationality of your lived reality, taking it and just breaking it and making it your own. Mm. Um, It's kind of like 
Like, I almost want to say bastardizing it, but in, like, a good way. <laughs> yeah. Um, or abusing it as, I think. Yeah, that's me. true. Abusing yeah. it, yeah. Yeah, but no, it's such a such an interesting concept because, you know, reading, I think especially Mignon, like, mm-hmm. language and art, but language just is such an important tool for liberation. Mm-hmm. And it's just, like, one of those beautiful paradoxes of the human experience that's, like, the thing that we have is so insufficient. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, we were talking about yesterday about how there's this breakage of language, like, in the face of just horrific tragedy and violence because we just don't have language to express some experiences. But, you know, also there's this breakage of language, I think, from Manil to, like, get at this surrealism that's, like, Aside from the terrible aspect, just this, like, um, alternate space that's not, quote-unquote, reality. In order to access that, like, you have to... But it's just interesting to me that it's, like, the best tool... Not necessarily the best tool, but, like, one of the best tools is one that you have to use, like, quote-unquote, incorrectly. Mm-hmm. You know, break it, abuse it in order to kind of access mm-hmm. yeah. um, that space. Yeah. I mean, he really is, like, he has this radical, almost, like not to keep with the christian so it's a fundamentalist belief in in the power of language mm-hmm. to kind of create a different reality that's actually like and yeah i wanted to talk about this kind of stuff more the way he really talks about nothing is more real than the imaginary considered as the imaginary you know like once you unburden yourself of like once you've once you enter an a realm of imagination everything you create is completely true it's not a representation of anything else it's mm-hmm. only itself and like um he really believes that like not only is that like true in and of itself it's like more real or just as real as like real things yeah i would no and i think you can like, go the way and say even more real yeah mm-hmm. i guess you're right yeah. or definitely more real than descriptions of things yeah mm-hmm. yeah you know? Um, for sure, for sure. And, like, this is just a really powerful argument for the power of the novel, which, like, nobody's making those kinds of arguments in it anymore. Mm-hmm. Everyone's like, A, no one reads novels, which I think is stupid. But, like, <laughs> B, like, a novel's power is assessed, or poetry, I guess more accurately poetry, but whatever. These, the purpose of art is to change people's minds in some way. It's mm-hmm. to awaken a political consciousness. But he's like one, his, the kind of consciousness that he's trying to like stir up is of a, of a totally different order. Um, and it's profoundly idealistic, but I also think it's right. Or like, I believe in it way more Mm -hmm. than I believe in the idea that we need novels to like teach people about socioeconomic history and like, mm-hmm. and like yeah. the lives of others. Yeah. You know, I yeah. think that's bullshit. Like there are better ways to learn about those things. Yeah. No, I know this was something we wanted to bring up because, um, you know, we were talking about his, uh, I guess, vision for like what art ideally can and should do in society. And, um, you know, I think that this idea of what is art, and what should it do, if it should do anything, um, can be kind of a loaded, charged question, you know, for uh, 
for people and you see something a lot. I mean, something I think you see a lot today, um, you know, like in museum exhibits, for example. I mean, there's no explicit statement that like art is supposed to be for social justice. But that's, you know, essentially kind of the the message that that we're getting. Not all the time, but you do you do you do see it a lot or this idea that art that changes you know, something, be it people's minds or politics or whatever, that that art is, like, inherently more valuable than, oh, some other, quote, art that doesn't do that. And and I think you're right, Charlie, that Menil's vision here still does maintain this kind of sense that art is productive. So it, it is art is supposed to do something, but it's a different, it's, it's a different, it's a different vision of that, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, um, I would be interested to hear Tegan's like sociological vision of this. Like one counterpoint to this or the question that I would pose, which is like, okay, if your political vision is based on, I think John brought this up too. Your political vision is based on like gendering a new like societal consciousness through Mm -hmm. literacy. Like Mm -hmm. that's a very cart before the horse is Mm -hmm. one argument. So like, I guess the, what do you guys think? Like, the politics of this are. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's fair to say, well, it's infeasible because at this time, like mm-hmm. so much of the Caribbean population only spoke Creole or or d- couldn't read French or like whatever. But like, what are some responses to that question? I don't know if this will actually answer your question, yeah. but I do have thoughts on sociology and surrealism. Go for it. Hopefully at that in yeah. some way tie back that I was thinking about. Um because I have kind of gone on my own um side reading rabbit hole with surrealism and I was reading an article about I was reading an article about Irish surrealism and then that led me to a quote about how ethnographers try to make the strange familiar and surrealists try to make the familiar strange. And that really stood out to me because Mm -hmm. um, I uh, used to TA for introduction to sociology for like six semesters. And every single semester, the professor would tell students that the sociological imagination is making the familiar strange. Yeah, And I had never thought of like sociology, like I hadn't tried to mm. make that connection between sociology and surrealism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was able to find an article that was about um, bringing surrealism back into sociology. Yeah. Right. And I think it does kind of tie into a lot of like frustration that specifically qualitative scholars in sociology yeah. have with the direction sociology is going, mm-hmm. not only being largely focused on like quantitative sociology and making sociology a hard science, um, and also just a lack of care for like beautiful writing anymore. A lot of sociology is trying to be very streamlined, very precise, very formulaic. And just having a complete disregard for um, beautiful writing, as I said, and that led me to another article that was about bringing humor into methodology, which mm-hmm. I'm still reading. So I, I I haven't taken a full analysis away from that. Um, but I feel like we are forgetting or that I feel like sociology had potential to be artistic 
Um, but mm. so many sociologists are pushing it to be science. Yeah. Um, and I'm just kind of thinking about like this like fascinating juxtaposition that here, like on the University of Maryland campus, the sociology building is shared with the art building. Yeah. And oh, yeah. like I'm just kind of thinking like I feel like you can see that either as like harmony or juxtaposition, totally. depending on like the way that you're deciding to perceive sociology. I just yesterday, um, I was with Dalton and they found a pamphlet um for like the sociology major and it had like math on the front of it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I was like, and like honestly, I I bet someone could argue that math can be artistic, but I I just feel like the, the way they were thinking about it though was like very hard statistical, hard right. science. Like I know that that was the intention when they made that pamphlet. Um yeah. There that's that speaks to some dynamics in my personal life because I'm um dating an anthropologist mm-hmm. or I'm in a you know, long-term partnership with uh, um, an anthropology student. And um, I, when she was home with my family one time, she was talking to my uncle, who's like a literal scientist. <laughs> and he was like talking about, he was asking her, he was approaching her basically as a scientist and asking her about ethnography as a methodology, <laughs> um, which doesn't pass any muster as legitimate science <laughs> to like, he's like, well, how does how do you mm-hmm. um how do you record your data mm-hmm. and how do you share your data with like how do you verify like the legitimacy of like other people's data and mm-hmm. like how do you know that someone well like is everything recorded like how do how do you like prove like mm-hmm. what you saw and stuff and it was like dude this is a different we're in different epistemological territory here yeah i i think um you know what this actually reminds me of is like mindiel's kind of vision that like deep awareness of the self and deep social consciousness as a mm-hmm. collective are not opposed. Mm-hmm. I don't know, just when you were talking, Tegan, just this, I don't know, that's just kind of what I was thinking about. Mm-hmm. And especially since like deep awareness of the self is so connected with this, like, like accessing the marvelous and accessing the surreal. Mm-hmm. And so then when you draw that connection back in again with social consciousness, mm-hmm. social consciousness, it's like, yeah, we don't need to see a juxtaposition between mm-hmm. like, arts and humanities in this way i don't know if that sounds like a stretch but no, I think it's that's true. what i was thinking about no yeah. i think that's that's a good connection mm-hmm. yeah i think this is what we have time for um yeah this was really rewarding guys yeah well thank you all for listening and joining us in our conversation about Manil, and we will catch you next time